Well, it's good to see uh, all of you here this morning and to have you with us on a, a cold and a little bit of a snowy morning. And as we continue looking at the Gospel of Matthew together, um, I'm going to read Scripture for us in, in a moment. But uh, I want to begin just by praying and asking God for His help as we study His Word, um, as we ask to, to hear from Him. Ultimately, when uh, no matter who it is that's preaching on a Sunday morning, we're not looking to hear uh, from Bill or from... Paul or a particular speaker, we're, we want to hear from, from God. We want to hear from His Word. And so um, I'm going to pray now and ask that that is, is what, by God's grace, would happen here as we look at His Word. Father in heaven, we uh, know that you are living and active, and that your Word, like you, is also living and active, that it speaks and it uh, convicts and it, it challenges and it encourages. And so I pray this morning that all of those things would be true. Um, that you would reveal to us what you want to do to us and in us and through us um, as we hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think there's one thing uh, that I can say confidently of just about every one of us here this morning, and that is that we all want happiness. We all want happiness. And, and I think even as, as a country, uh, we have a sense of this deep within us, right? Because the, the very document that signaled the founding of our country, the Declaration of Independence, right? Everybody knows the phrase that, that we have this, this right, this unalienable right, this basic human right of, to, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So how much of what you do, how much of what I do every day is is aimed at, at, at being happy. And as I thought about that, I was like, we're really, in one way or another, just about everything I do, 80, 90% of what I do every single day, um, probably higher than that, is, is aimed at, at being happy. And we're, we're happiness-oriented creatures. Uh, we're oriented toward that goal of, of being happy. And, and few have put their finger on that reality about us as human beings more clearly than the 17th century philosopher-mathematician Blaise Pascal. And, and look, he, he may be old, and he wrote a long time ago, but brilliance is, is brilliance in whatever century it comes. And so listen to what Pascal writes. He says, All men, all people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object, to the object of being happy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. So in short, if you ask Pascal, why did the chicken cross the road? Pascal is going to say, because he thought he'd be happier on the other side. A few of you laughed at that. I was really hoping for, for I guess, philosophy, chicken crossing the road jokes aren't as funny to everyone as they are to me. But, um, but and why wouldn't we want to be happy, right? I mean, happiness is it's amazing. People who are happy live longer. Uh, they do better at work. There's lots of studies that show that people who are happy, they have a sense of well-being, just are comprehensively better off in their life. Um, and we probably don't need a study to demonstrate that to us. We know that happiness is a good thing. But the trouble with happiness is, is that it's so elusive often, so fleeting. We, we get glimpses of it here and there. We get tastes of it every now and again. And often it seems so tantalizingly close and so far away at the same time. It's almost like, I don't know if you have the experience of looking at the moon through a telescope and 
through the telescope, it looks so close. Like you could just sort of reach around and touch it, and yet it's, it's thousands and thousands of miles away. I remember as a kid uh, collecting Star Wars action figures. Many of you who know me know I love Star Wars, and as a kid, um, maybe even now still, I was a pretty big uh, Star Wars nerd. My, my first email address was sci-fi man at juno.com, so I was pretty deep in, <laughs> into that world as a middle schooler. And, uh, and I uh, was always trying to find these, these hard-to-get Star Wars action figures, and I'd call up Target, and I knew what days they got their shipments in, and I'd go, and I'd look through and find, you know, that I was always trying to find that Luke Skywalker, a stormtrooper with removable helmet uh, action figure, and, but whenever I would find that one that I'd been on a quest to find, you sort of get it home, and you look at it, and, and a few hours later, just sort of lost something, and it, it wasn't as good as I thought it would be. And you know, we, we never grow out of that, do we? It's like longing for that one thing. You finally get it and it's good for a little while and it just seems empty. So how do we get happiness? What is it really? Who, who defines what happiness is? And really the question that's underneath all of those questions are just these big, giant, basic questions of life that, that all of us have some sort of an answer to but we rarely think about. And that's the questions of what is the good life? What's the good person? And some have actually defined the essence of pride as being defining happiness for yourself, figuring out the good life on your own. And so what Adam and Eve did in the garden, isn't it? That they, they decided they were going to define happiness for themselves apart from God. And I think one of our supreme values in the West and in American culture is just that, to do what makes us happy at all at pretty much all cost. And yet, as my experience with the Luke Skywalker action figure shows, it just that isn't working for us. It's not, it's not working for us as individuals. I don't think it's working for us as a culture. And so if anybody in the universe has some better advice, I, I mean, I'm listening. <laughs> I'm interested. I want to know what does happiness really look like? And of course, uh, as we turn to the Gospels, we discover Jesus has some ideas about, about this, as you might imagine. Um, but the thing is with Jesus, as so often is the case, is it's the opposite of everything we would think. Everything that we would expect that would seem normal. Jesus flips it on his head. He redefines it. And it's often super counterintuitive. It's really uncomfortable. It's regularly hard. And also, it just might be worth trying and according to Jesus, the happiest life is the upside-down life. The happiest life is the upside-down life. And it's why we're calling this section of the Gospel of Matthew as we're going through it, the upside-down kingdom, um, because Jesus flips everything on its head. And as this morning, as we launch into Jesus' most famous sermon, one of his most famous sections of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount, it takes up Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, what we discover in this section at the beginning is what's called the Beatitudes, um, you may have heard that term before. It comes from the Latin translation of, of the first word of each statement. In, in English, it's the word they're blessed or blessed. It could also be translated as favor or, or happiness. And not happiness in a fleeting sort of feeling sense, but happiness that's indicative of the good life. A satisfaction that lasts through thick and thin. 
And so the moment that we are at in the Gospels is Jesus has charted to gain a lot of notoriety. And you can kind of picture Jesus. He's at the height of his, of his fame in Galilee. And there's people he's been healing. He's been teaching. Crowds have been following him. Everyone's talking about him. This is the time, you know, if Jesus lived in our time, this is the time when he's going to get the book deal. He's going to go on Jimmy Fallon. This is the moment. He's, he's rising up. He's becoming um, an important figure in this area. But instead of doing that and kind of seizing on hold of this fame, he walks up into the hills, and here's a picture of the traditional site where people think this may have happened, and he preaches this sermon, which isn't exactly what we would expect. And so let me read the first part of the sermon for us. If you want to follow along in your Bible or you, in, on your phone, or you can grab one of the Pew Bibles, it's found on page 809, 809 in the Pew Bibles. And we're going to start reading at Matthew chapter 4, verse 25. And then on into Matthew chapter 5, where the Sermon on the Mount begins. Again, it's page 809 in the Pew Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. And great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus says, happiest are those people. And I don't know about you, but when I read through those lists, that list of people that Jesus describes there, it seems pretty upside down to me. These don't necessarily seem like the people that pop to mind as the happiest people. But before we go through these categories of the happiest kinds of people, we need to do uh, a few quick clarifications on, on what Jesus is doing here. Because there's a lot of debate on how these words should be interpreted, how they should be lived out. Um, for example, Matthew records this for us, but also if you turn to the Gospel of Luke, you remember there, there are four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you read Luke, he also records this, but he records them a bit differently. And it's not a problem. Um, imagine if the two of us were taking notes together on a sermon that Jesus gave. We'd probably write down different things. Um, none of us is going to write down everything that was said. And the same is true with the gospel writers. They recorded um, highlights for us. They're not, it's not a word-for-word transcript of, of every single thing that was said. And also, Jesus probably taught this sermon more than one time. This probably wasn't the one moment in his ministry where he gave this sermon. He probably gave it uh, often, um, some form of it kind of like a politician's stump speech. Depending on where they're at, they might change a few things here and there, but the core message of it is the same each time. Also important, these aren't commands, um, nor are they kind of if-then statements. Um, if you do this, then you will be blessed or happy. 
That's, that's not what's happening here. Um, rather, Jesus is describing the kinds of people who are blessed, who are happiest in his inbreaking kingdom. You see, a kingdom has arrived. Jesus says, with his person, a kingdom has arrived, but it also isn't here fully yet. And this means that there's all kinds of tension as we try to figure out what Jesus means by these things, how we're supposed to live them out, and they certainly aren't tidy guarantees. And yet there are really important lessons to be learned here. These kinds of people are blessed, UBC, because they are the kinds of people who are drawn to Jesus' kingdom. And nothing is more important than that. See, the happiest life is the upside-down life. The happiest life is the upside-down life. And so first Jesus tells us that blessed, happiest are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven is a phrase that we're going to hear a lot in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's shorthand for all of the good that comes when, when God's gracious rule and rescue enters into the world, both now in part and fully in the future. And you see, the poor in spirit have assurance of that current and future hope that God is going to make all things new, all things righteous. And that is why they are happy. That's why they're, they're blessed. But here's the question then for us. What is in the world does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because it doesn't just refer to being materially poor, not having enough money, um, though it can certainly include that. But it refers to people here in Matthew who are desperate in their need for God, who know that they aren't good enough, who know that they, they don't deserve God's blessing or goodness or grace or forgiveness. And this is upside down, right? Because we tend to think, Blessed are the people who have it all together. Blessed are the people who haven't, who haven't messed their lives up. Blessed are the people who haven't made big mistakes. But the reality is that Jesus doesn't have anything to offer to those who think they have everything together. And if you're here this morning and you don't think that you need rescue, if you don't think you need a Savior, Jesus doesn't really have anything for you. Next, Jesus says, happiest are those who mourn, which is a tough one, right? Because how do those who mourn, how are they also happy? Those two things seem utterly contradictory. And if we think that they are happy because they mourn, they really are contradictory, But Jesus tells us they're happy not because they mourn, but because they will be comforted. It's important to understand that in the Bible, those who mourn are not necessarily just those who experience personal loss, though again, that can certainly be part of it. But this is bigger than that. The community of people that Jesus is creating mourn all that is broken in the world, sin and death and suffering and broken marriages and estranged children and oppression of themselves and others. We tend to think happy are those who aren't sad. (laughs) Blessed are those who are able to live lives that aren't marked by grief and suffering. But you see, in Jesus' upside-down kingdom, there's always a cross before a crown. There's always suffering before glory. There's always mourning before comfort. 
One person put it this way, that those who claim to experience all the kingdom's joys without its tears mistake the nature of the kingdom. Those who claim to experience all the kingdom's joys without its tears mistake the nature of the kingdom. Those who mourn are happy because they follow a king who has suffered and been raised to glory, a king who has begun to and will finally one day wipe away every tear from their eyes as they follow him on the way marked with suffering. So happiest are the poor in spirit, the, those who mourn. And then Jesus says, happiest are the meek. And this is probably one of the most misunderstood of the Beatitudes because of what comes to our mind when we hear the English word meek. And, and it's probably certainly not what Jesus has in mind. Because the meek are, are not, for Jesus when he's talking about this, the meek are not the, not the shy or the servile or the, or the doormats. No, Matthew actually uses the same word to describe Jesus himself. Jesus uses it of himself in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavenly laden, and I will give you rest. He says, I'm gentle. Same word translated meek. In Matthew 11 translated gentle. I'm gentle and humble in heart. I'm meek and humble in heart. But even gentle doesn't quite get at it fully. You see, the meek are not those who are weak. They're strong, but they don't use their strength in an oppressive or arrogant way. They don't throw their weight around to make things happen or in order to get their way. They have a right view of themselves that leads them to treat others with kindness and respect. They're not too bold, and they're also not too timid. They know when to push, and they know when to wait back. Again, we tend to think happiest are those who, who demand their way, who don't take no for an answer, who get what they want on their terms. But the meek are happy because they know that in Jesus and in his coming kingdom, they are already guaranteed everything they could ever want. And so they don't have to insist on being right. They don't have to win every time. They don't always have to assert their rights. And they're happy. Happiest also are the hungry, the hungry for righteousness, both personal righteousness and justice for the disenfranchised. It's a longing for a right relationship for God, for things to be restored, for things to be made whole. You hunger for it as if you may never be filled, and yet blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because Jesus said they will be satisfied. And the word used for satisfaction here, this idea that they will be satisfied, it's the same word often used um, to describe the, the process of fattening an animal. They're gonna, you're going to be satisfied like after Thanksgiving dinner when you're just absolutely stuffed. So what are you hungry for? If it's money, you'll never have enough. If it's beauty, it'll fade if it's success, it will end. If it's family, they'll grow up, move away. If it's love and friendship, it will disappoint. You see, if you thirst for anything else, it can't be quenched. It's like sitting in a life raft trapped in the middle of all of this water and being desperately thirsty and drinking the salt water, which only makes you thirsty until it finally kills you. But if this is what we hunger for, why are they the happiest? 
those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because only that will ultimately satisfy. And in Jesus' kingdom, they will be satisfied. Happiest are those who crave one thing above all else. Okay, so we're, we're halfway done. Uh, we're rounding the corner here on the Beatitudes list. So hopefully you're still with me. Uh, next, Jesus says, happiest are the merciful, the wronged but forgiving, not the judgmental, not the self-righteous, not the bitter grudge holders. We all know how miserable those people are. It's the merciful. And they're merciful because they know they need mercy. And we will receive mercy if we're in a place of knowing and desperate need how much we need mercy from God the Father who's in heaven. And it's what people who are forgiven do. If you are forgiven, you extend forgiveness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The reason that some of us are so miserable this morning is because we can't let go of a way that we've been hurt. The happiest life The truly good life is a forgiving life. Because the merciful know that God's mercy will never fail them. The pure in heart. See, it's not just about keeping all the rules. Lots of religious people did and do that. We can be really good at keeping the rules. But but the thing is, is behind all of that rule keeping, there's all sorts of mixed motivation and self-focused reasons that lead either to pride or despair, and usually both. It's more than keeping rules. It's about your heart. That's what Jesus says. It's those who are pure in heart. Who you are on the inside counts as much and probably more than what you do or don't do on the outside. Who you are on the inside counts more than what you do or don't do on the outside because ultimately all the transformation works from the inside out. Blessed are those impure in heart, for they shall see God. Because God is pure, only those who are pure can fully see him, experience him, enjoy him, know him. The happiest life doesn't just do the right things. The happiest life loves the right things delights in the right things. It desires the right things. Next, the peacemakers. Those who seek shalom, who seek this comprehensive peace. There's so much conflict around us all the time, isn't isn't there? In our relationships, in our homes, uh, more broadly in our neighborhood, in our city, around the world. Conflict is a constant. Really, Really, anywhere you put two people together for more than just a couple of seconds, there's the potential for conflict there. I was reminded of this. I'm driving down the highway and someone starts to cut me off. I mean, I don't even know the person. And there's like, there's conflict because of that. And you think about the fall when Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 3. The very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, the first two brothers there, Cain and Abel. And Cain murders Abel. It's like, wow, that, that escalated quickly. And then, I mean, conflict is all around us. Jesus says the happiest are the peacemakers. We tend to think happiest are those who are able to avoid conflict or, or those who keep the peace at all costs. But Jesus says happiest are the peacemakers. And peacemakers, it, peacemaking, it, it's different than pacifism and it's different than just peacekeeping. 
Because you see, the biblical idea of peace has behind it this, this Hebrew word shalom, which is not just the absence of conflict, but it's, it's about comprehensive well-being in every dimension of life. Peacemakers don't just quiet the storm. They seek to make things right in a world that's so wrong. They don't just look to treat sort of symptoms, but to really work at root causes, to bring shalom to the forgotten, the poor, the oppressed. So as I think about that, I think about our Inspire Freedom Weekend that happens at our downtown campus and the annual performance of Underground, which if you've never seen Underground, and I'm not a huge ballet person, but I've seen Underground many times, and it is one of the most powerful things to experience. To see the story of those who, who risked so much in the fight against slavery, depicted beautifully and powerfully through dance. It's a small way of partnering together, showing unity, pursuing shalom together in an area like race where shalom is so often missing. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And it makes sense, right, that that they should be called children of God because this is what God is all about. He is the peacemaker. So those who follow him only follow after him in that work. No one's happier than those who are seeking shalom. And finally, the persecuted. This is the longest one of all of them, the one that gives Jesus gives the most time to. And it reveals that Jesus knows exactly where all this is going for himself, as well as for those who take him seriously and try to really obey the life that he's called him to. It's also the one that's the most difficult for me to get my mind around. Because if I go through the first seven of these, I can kind of see the goodness in them. But this last one, happy are the rejected, the despised, the marginalized, the mocked. Happiest are the tortured, the imprisoned, the murdered. It's not the, the safe or the comfortable or the liked. Blessed are those who persecuted Jesus, or persecuted Jesus says, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is, again, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, this may be the one of the hardest for us to get our minds around, but I think it's also key to understanding all of these Beatitudes, the, the seven that come before. And the reason why is this, because the happiest life is the upside-down life, and ultimately the happiest life is the life that's lost its obsession with this life alone. For it knows that there is a better one, a better kingdom coming. Now is temporary, and the only way that any of this makes any sense is if we believe that Jesus' kingdom, yes, begins now, has broken in, has started already, but that it also lasts forever, that it is coming in a fuller expression, that we're longing for a new heavens and a new earth when all will be restored. So if we have that view, then what's 80 years of persecution or pain, poverty, grief, or sacrifice? It's only ultimately in the broad stretch of eternity, just a moment in time. See, ours is the kingdom of heaven. The happiest life is the one that never ends. I realize there's a lot here for us to process. 
If you're like me, you're probably feeling a little bit overwhelmed, probably more than a little inadequate as we look at this life that Jesus calls us to. So you're not alone in that. But let's conclude then with kind of three quick takeaways, three things I know I need if I'm going to pursue this better happiness that Jesus offers and how we put this all together. So the first thing is this. If we want to live the truly happy life, first we have to give up trying to define happiness for ourselves. We have to abandon trying to figure out happiness on our own. I think all of us know deep down it's not working. And Jesus' definition is the opposite of everything we want after. We spend our lives chasing happiness but never seem to catch it. And seriously, I I do think that one of the, the only true values left in our cultural context is do whatever makes you happy. And you look around, and yet we're, we're more miserable and angry and lonely and anxious and depressed than we've ever been. So stop letting your friends tell you what's going to make you happy. Stop letting advertising tell you what's going to make you happy. I was struck by that watching the, the football game yesterday afternoon, just all the commercials and, and the, all of these promises, either explicit or implicit promises of if you just get this thing, then you'll be happy. Stop looking to, to Instagram and Facebook and saying, if I could only look like that or my house looked like that or my family looked like that, then I'd be happy. And, and I'm convinced even I don't know what's really going to make me happy. Rebecca DeYoung, who's a philosopher at uh, Calvin College in Grand Rapids, she writes a fantastic book called Vainglory. It's also painfully convicting. And she writes this. She said, Pride is the vice of putting yourself at the center of things in God's place, choosing your own way to happiness and believing that any goodness or happiness you have is due to your own power or merit. She writes, A prideful disposition says, in effect, I will decide what happiness is for me and I will provide it for myself. It's, it's time to reject shallow, shallow definitions of the good life and let Jesus tell us what's really going to make us happy. So first, stop trying to define happiness for yourself. Second, want more out of life, not less. Want more out of life, not less. Which may sound surprising after hearing Jesus' description of the happiest life. Like maybe all we need is just to lower our expectations and embrace the the misery. And if we just all want less, we'd be better off. But nothing could be further from the truth. That's, That's sort of a stream of thought that's present in Buddhism. That if we just sort of detach from all these temporal things, then we'll be happy. But but it's not the gospel. Our problem isn't that we want too much. It's that we're satisfied with so little. We actually think that sex and money and stuff and success will make us truly happy. How, how small, how weak our desires really are. What Jesus is offering is an entire kingdom with everything made right, even us, where our, our desires aren't just made, they just aren't fulfilled. They're actually made whole and redeemed and transformed. We'll live forever with a joy that we can't imagine and when we embrace his happiness, we begin to taste that life, beginning even here and now. C.S. Lewis writes in one of his most famous sermons, he says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, 
because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So stop defining happiness for yourself. Want more from life, not less. And finally, follow the lead of the happiest person who ever lived. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus was truly the happiest person who ever lived. Yes, he was the man of sorrows, but he perfectly did the will of the Father, and he led the happiest life. He led the truly good life, the happiest life, better than anyone else. Every one of these things he did. He was utterly dependent on his Father. He wept over sin and death and brokenness. He's meek and humble in heart. He longed for his Father alone more than anything else. He showed mercy, forgiving even those who were mocking and killing him. He saw the Father with perfect clarity and purity, and he reveals the Father to us. Through his death on the cross, he makes peace between us and God and becomes the ultimate peacemaker. He was persecuted and yet received a great reward for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, taking our place, suffering our failures, dying for our forgiveness that we might be comforted. And he didn't stay dead and neither shall we. He rose again so that you and I can actually embrace this life Embrace this upside-down happiness, both now and forever. And trust that in the end, this will be better. Happiest are those who trust everything to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for those of us this morning that are finding satisfaction in something that's less than you, would you take us to the bottom of that satisfaction and realize that it doesn't satisfy? For those of us here this morning who just feel completely beat down, who feel completely helpless, who feel completely like they could never be accepted by other people, much less by you, would you bring a sense of your comfort and welcome? For those of us who are here this morning who maybe feel like, I don't really need this. Would you show us the depth of our need for you? Would you shatter our own definitions of happiness and help us to abandon them for, for the one true path to joy? in you. In Jesus' name, amen.